Another episode of Life, Love, and the Grind coming at you. We've got some very interesting guests today, a show that I'm excited about. And you might notice there is a, a change in our scenery, a change in the venue. We're back in uh, Casa de la Raza because mm -hmm. um, we've got some exciting things coming up. I don't want to give it away too soon, but we are going to tell you today what the future holds for Life, Love, and the Grind. But first... Um, I, I got to wish my buddy here a happy birthday. Sean Allen's birthday, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, happy birthday. It's my birthday today, and I'm excited to have you two guys as guests because this is my birthday present. Exactly. Oh. He worked hard at it. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be good. We're going to get down and dirty on the, the labor movement, which is uh, so, 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 exactly. Let's, let's tell our uh, listeners, watchers, we have... Um, Two great guests who are very active with the labor movement. We have Professor Bob Bruno, Professor Bruno, as I call you, because you uh, the only time I've seen you is in the class yeah. when I've got to put on my best behavior to get that grade. Well, you're one of the better students. Oh, well, <laughs> well, thank you. And, you and you those class. kind of remarks get you on the show each and every go. time. <laughs> <laughs> and we have uh, Susan Hurley with Chicago Jobs with Justice. Yep. Um, tell us a little about what you do. Well, uh, I'm the director at Chicago Jobs with Justice, and so what I do is, you know, try and be um, a point person between um, organized labor and um, active campaigns and issues. So right now, um, we're um, working on the apparently the possibility that Amazon wants to put a fulfillment center in Pullman in Chicago. Right. So that's just an example of, you know, we are very nimble and we respond to, you know, fast changing events, whether it's the Chicago teacher strike or, um, you know, Amazon wants to build a warehouse in Pullman. And uh, Professor Bruno, I don't have to call you that on this show. No, Bob, tell me understand. a little about what you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So I teach uh, at the University of Illinois, uh, the School of Labor and Employment Relations, and it's a school that's dedicated to educating undergraduates, graduates, and adult workers, um, predominantly in the labor movement, about collective bargaining, about workplace relations, the relationship between employers and in employees. I've been doing that now, I'm in my 24th year. Um, so a lot of teaching in the field of collective bargaining to union members and also to undergraduates. And then a lot of academic writing, publishing. Uh, I'm part of a I direct a policy research shop called the Project for Middle Class Renewal at the school, which turns out a lot of policy-related uh, papers. And, and the focus is really on educating uh, under, undergraduates and working people in Illinois about collective bargaining. And it's been a it's been a great career. Yeah. Well, we had the privilege of having you speak at our Bricklayers uh, Training Center in Addison, you know, a few years back, which everybody was. Uh, yeah. Excited about it. I know you go from union to union, kind of right. spreading the good word. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, actually, I did want to mention that we are streaming this live on Raza VP as well, because one of the things we've been wanting to do is put together a next-gen kind of leadership training at our union. Um, ours is very different than the building trades. We don't have an mm -hmm. apprenticeship program. We basically, um, people, members are hired by the companies, and then we have to train them uh, on something so it's not like, They've known all their lives what unions are about. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have market hoppers who come from other stations. So I thought, you know what, this would be a great training opportunity because what both of you do are your activists, right, in terms of mobilization and organization and letting people come together and working for a cause. Um, I remember, Susan, you, um, during the deportation mm -hmm. uh, situation, were organizing people to go to the Gary Airport to, to kind of talk uh, – 
tell me what you guys did because I found it very interesting and I didn't know it was um, something Chicago Jobs with Justice did. So it was kind of eye-opening to me. Right. Well, we have worked on immigrant rights with organized labor in Chicago for many years through our Labor Committee on Immigrant Worker Rights. And unfortunately, uh, immigration enforcement has only been on the increase. And uh, what was a campaign that was brought to us was um, the fact that there are folks that are part of Northwest Indiana resistance um, who have been organizing against the deportation flights that happen at the Gary Chicago Airport on a weekly basis every Friday. And this has been going on for years. And so what we did is we organized um, busloads of activists um, with unions as well as Chicago DSA to go and protest at the airport with our friends at Northwest Indiana Resistance. Um, and it was and it was on it's been on multiple Fridays um, because that's when the flights happen. So you said this has been going on for years. It wasn't yes. something more recent during this administration, or no. was it? I think it, no, it was going on before the Trump administration. Okay, and, and um, did it just come up on your radar recently? Or was right, it that's what was brought to us. I was, you know, I, like so many people at the time, was not aware that there were deportation flights mm -hmm. happening at Gary Chicago Airport, um, you know, up until a few years ago. And so it's just a little known practice, and we felt that it was important that people in Chicago know that this airport that bears our name, at least in part, um, and that we have a role in providing governance for as a city and a state, um, that this is happening. And most people are not, you know, supportive of that. You know, Susan's good work and the work of the organization really is critical, I think, as we're talking about labor movement, particularly uh, younger workers, and you think about the future of the labor movement, uh, it's going to develop in concordance with how the economy develops, right? And what will that new emergent middle class look like? And the American labor movement has always been a movement of immigrant workers. That's right. And clearly, given changing demographics, if organized labor is going to have a presence in workplaces, in, in, in politics, in the community, it's going to need to be fully supportive of the diversity of that workforce. So addressing the way we treat immigrant workers is essential to the to to the political and economic power of both immigrant workers and native workers so having labor being part of this effort to push back against this kind of uh, of abuse you really human right abuse is essential to organized labor's long-term uh, viability so and when we talk about immigrants you know you I mean it's it's mostly you know Latino Hispanic the workforce right I mean, that's probably the majority. And that's what a lot of people don't understand that, and especially in Chicago, we have a huge Eastern European, Irish, oh, yeah. Polish, African, Russian, Asian. Yeah, you know, but it's funny how you, we never really hear much on that. It's always like build the wall, the border, you know. Yeah. And it's funny how they manipulate this immigrant workforce when I'm always like, well, is it, it's really only not even anti-immigrants, it's just anti-brown and black people. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of the big push that we're always working with. Our members to be like, well, I mean, in Chicago, I think there's more Polish than or Warsaw. Oh yeah. And also, I'm like, it's why we have this such a inherent desire to go after the brown and black, you know, men and women. It's like, how do we change that? How how do we try to shift that? Well, I mean, I don't. I wish I really had a decisive answer to that. I mean, it's a it's a thorny problem. But one thing that I think is important is that we remember our history. 
Great. And I think that's what um, Bob was speaking to as a good professor. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, our history is, you know, that every new wave of immigrant was targeted and, and it was even cast in racial terms like the Irish were considered a separate race you know, way back in the day. And it's easy to forget that. I mean, people would talk about the physical differences mm -hmm. of the Irish, you know, and today that just seems kind of like, wait, what, really? Uh, because that is just melted into this generic idea of whiteness that we have, right? And so it's important to remember that people have always, you know, cultivated this kind of rhetoric and perception of the newcomer, of the new immigrant, of the new wave of people coming to the United States. And so there's nothing in particular that distinguishes today's immigrant from the generations that have come before. They're hardworking folks that, you know, are, are here to make a better life for themselves and their family. And we should welcome that. So not only is it in our self-interest as organized labor to be able to organize immigrant workers now and going forward, it's also in the broader interest of our society. I mean, we want to have a strong, growing, vibrant economy, and that depends on, has always depended on, waves of new um, people coming to the United States, making it their home, and uh, creating, you know, the the America, you know, the new America. Yeah, you know, uh, Sean, you asked the question about uh, how do you change this, right? How do you make mm -hmm. a difference? Uh, well. Within the labor movement, uh, the AFL-CIO a few year, years ago actually invested in a pretty elaborate training around immigration history. Uh, and they came out to various places like Chicago where people like myself got access to that training. Uh, and so individual unions could in fact adapt, adopt this training. They could look to bring it to their apprentices where apprenticeship programs exist or otherwise to rank and file workers. They could actually put immigration classes, immigration history in front of their uh, rank and file. Additionally, uh, some unions uh, recently, uh, I had the, the, the pleasure of doing a week-long training in which workers were exposed to uh, uh, issues around race and racial exclusion and also dealing with gender and sexual yeah. identity. So we, right. we talked about things like white privilege. We talked about misogyny. We talked about implicit micro forms of bias. We address are racists even a real DNA biological thing or are they socially constructed and who wins and who loses? Uh, so there are opportunities for organized labor to do that. Now it's to their members, of course, but if those members become apostles for inclusion, mm -hmm. yeah. they become a strong political force for advocating for all workers. And unless labor can bring all of those workers forward, uh, uh, ultimately marginal gains for, the, for white workers who feel like they've got some sort of advantage because of, of skin color, that, that'll disappear. Yeah. yeah. Professor Gruner, so Bob, I, I was reading a book um, uh, about the Chicago Defender, the uh, Chicago's black newspaper mm. that talked about John Abbott, the publisher um, of this newspaper. And, and, you know, let's be honest, labor uh, unions are a human institution. They're they're subject to a foil at some times. And, and there was a time when they were somewhat discriminatory. They were discriminatory. Sure. Um, Absolutely. The, the, yeah. uh, was it the Butcher's Union? Or, or it was one of the ones that was very exclusive. It sure. excluded black workers. But then when they started realizing, hey, this is a big workforce that could become competitive unless mm -hmm. we bring them in, a, a lot of workers were resistant to joining. And, and the publisher, John Abbott, said, hey, the only way you're going to effectuate change is to become part of this and work within the system, which it, it seems to me, um, like with this training, the AFL-CIO 
might be trying to do because um, I'll tell you, as a Muslim American, I find that I'm only going to be able to represent my interest um, if I'm in the union and say, hey, you know what, Let, let's let's see what we can do for all workers. Yeah. Is that uh, yeah. something you found? Sure, sure. Well, again, it, it really uh, corresponds with our own demographic, cultural, and economic history you know, in, in this country. It is absolutely true uh, that the labor movement, to a large extent from the from its founding in the latter part of the 19th century, you know, really up to the Civil Rights Act, that th there was a lot of uh, racial uh, and ethnic uh, separation. I mean, we had Jim Crow locals that coexisted okay. in the United States for far, far too long. And the labor movement wasn't universally behind the Civil Rights Act. It took some progressive leadership out of the UAW, for example. I mean, there were exceptions. There were African-American labor leaders like A. Philip Randolph, right? So there were some folks who were at, at the sort of the leading edge of progressive change. Uh, but it took a really a lot of concerted effort. In some cases, it took lawsuits, it took legal action to open up uh, the, the, the building trades particularly. Uh, but what, what, they, what was um, uh, clear was that if they left workers out, if they left them behind, they were essentially creating a reserve army of workers who had no reason to be supportive of organized labor. And what that did was it allowed employers, it allowed the very wealthy and powerful to use race, to use ethnicity, to use religion as a tool to divide and weaken workers. And when they did that, that suppressed all wages. W.E.B. Right. Du Bois made it very, very clear. You know, white workers have this sort of psychological advantage, right, because they're not not white. And there's some sort of advantage to that. Except that, that holds them down, right? You may not be a person of color, but in fact, you're not treated with the full respect that you should. So you suffer a penalty when you hold on to that bias. Um, and quite frankly, the labor movement as it is right now at 10.4% is far too small. Well, we read really an article, it's the lowest it's ever been. Lowest. That's the, right. low, the labor movement's as low as it's ever been. So, I mean, as, you know, young youngish labor leaders, I mean, it's scary. I mean, we have a long road. I mean, I, you know, and it's a, you know, we, we got to find a way to rejuvenate this workforce, but it's not even that. It's, I, I feel like, you know, like we talked about the Irish and Italians, when they came over here, they kind of went running to union halls. They felt more mm -hmm. like a sanctuary there. Where now it's like the, the new workforce, and it's not even just the immigrants. I mean, it's young American guys. I deal with them day in and down. It's like, I don't want to be union. I like this, just this average, you know, I'm getting paid $25. I'm good. I don't need benefits. Like I work all the time. Like it's such a hard sell. You would you wouldn't think it is, but it's like how are we not selling this this message to all these working people? Yeah. You know. You know. At the uh, same time, though, interrupt. yeah. But uh, I would also like to sell a message about some of the people that that we have worked with and supported what we do in terms of getting um, these messages out to our folks. One of my favorites is. Uh, Breaker Press. Yeah. So tell us a little about Breaker Press, Richie. <laughs> <Smooth>. <laughs> Just a little shout out to uh, you know, a great union friend of Rich Lewandowski and our friends over at Breaker Press have worked on hundreds of campaigns as well For as three my own. Generations, three so generations. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. So they're a premier Chicagoland uh, union printing, helping us, helping SAR win her race. You've used them. Of I, I know in my labor races, I've used them as well because why would you um, trust anyone but a union printer? You have a local one. One who's good at what he's done and done it for three generations, yeah. and that is? Chris Lewandowski with Breaker Press. Breaker Press. Um, uh -huh. So hopefully that graphic is up. Uh, you should be seeing it right down here. So yeah. if you've got any needs for printing, 
make sure to give him a call. And for everyone with the primaries coming up, Rich at BreakerPress.com, or you can call him on his number. He'll help you out. Speaking you know, I met him at an event, Rich, and uh, he gave me his card. And I appreciate this reminder because I do actually have some printing to do. So I'm going to give Rich a call. Well, like, yeah. I go to you should call me. Get the phone call. Right down yeah. there. <laughs> and uh, speaking of, you said primaries were coming yeah. up. Um, we, we we have some people that reached out to us to get their message across. So um, roll that beautiful bean footage. <laughs> Hi, I'm Azam Nizamuddin. I'm a Democrat running for circuit court judge in DuPage County. I've been an attorney for 20 years. I have worked at large law firms, small law firms, and I've had my own practice. I am recognized for building bridges and unity in the DuPage community. I have fought for victims and the accused. I'm dedicated to impartiality, to make sure that everyone has equal access to justice, and to make sure that bias has no place in our legal system. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I believe in an America of hope. An America where the content of your character matters more than your last name. With my decades of legal experience and my ongoing work to promote unity between diverse communities, I am ready to serve all the people of DuPage on the circuit court bench. So I'm asking for your vote. Please vote for Azam Nizamuddin for circuit court judge on March 17th. Paid for by friends of Azam Nizamuddin for judge. So there you go, just another one of the great candidates we have, Azam Nizamuddin, running for circuit court judge in DuPage, March 17th. We encourage everybody to make sure you go out and vote in general. It's a, It's been a hard road that people fought and died to get our votes, so make sure you get out and vote. And, and I'm sorry, we interrupted you as you were talking. <laughs> you remember what it was? Of course, I have no that idea what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> let's go back three minutes. And let's remember what we got. You kind of make me smooth once. That's what I like. The first state everything after. <laughs> so, okay, so so bringing in that inclusive culture, we're talking about the labor movement. I, I, I mean, you, in your work, must deal with people who somewhat feel disenfranchised, maybe not just uh, societarily, uh, is that the right word? Societally, but <laughs> of course not, right? I got to go back to class, but also just in terms of, uh, there's a lot of fear out there from what I've heard. Absolutely. How, how, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with letting people know, hey, we're going to come and we're going to fight for you and don't be scared because, um, you know, they might just see someone who's, again, part of the institution or the establishment. How do you show that, that you have their back? Well, I, I, I appreciate the question in, in part because one thing that I tell people is that part of the reason I'm at Jobs with Justice is because I was a union organizer. Um, I was a union organizer for SEIU in, in healthcare, and it's extraordinarily difficult to form a union. It's incredibly difficult for people to organize, and um, even though polls, I guess, are showing that you know lots of people would like to be in the in in a union if they had an opportunity to. So, I think 
Um, what I hope to be able to accomplish at Jobs with Justice is to make union organizing easier. And part of the way that you do that is addressing the misconceptions and the myths and misunderstandings about what a union is and what it means to form a union at your workplace. Um, because when I was out there, you know, uh, knocking on doors or talking to workers, they had a lot of, you know, uh, either no idea or bad ideas about what a, a union was. And um, I think it's important that we try and show labor, you know, putting its best self forward, like in the struggles in the past that Bob described or the struggles of today, um, that labor is really showing what it's capable of. And what it's capable of is bringing people together from all walks of life and fight for a better, you know, a better um, economy, a better society. And so um, I think that's the best thing that we can accomplish. Now, has labor stepped forward to help you with this to, to, so that you're not just a facilitator, but that they're uh, coming out there and, and showing what they can do? Absolutely. I mean, it, part of the reason Jobs with Justice exists is because um, labor unions created it to do precisely that. Um, and so um, all of the work that we do is driven by our labor union partners. Um, and so, you know, my most favorite, most recent example is um, when the CFL responded to Alderman Beal talking about putting a, uh, an Amazon Fulfillment Center in Pullman, and the CFL put out a statement um, saying that we're not going to give tax breaks to Amazon, you know, and that Amazon not only needs to build union, um, but it needs to operate union. And that's a really strong statement, and um, and it's something that I'm excited to work with CFL and other partners on really holding a company like Amazon accountable. And I think when your average working person sees organized labor standing up to corporate greed, that's when they start to get the idea of, you know what, maybe there is hope. Maybe there is a way for me to change, you know, um, my daily existence. Well, just to touch base on that, I want to get your take. You know, obviously, doctor, professor, and master. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, Amazon's almost the new, it's almost like the new Walmart. You know, they want to come in and just, you know, like we, you know, teach in our bricklaying apprentice classes about, you know, how Walmart will come into these towns and, you know, jack the prices way down and run everyone out of business and then just. And then you've got a company up. store. And then you're owned. And, and then if you try to unionize, they just close down and they take off and they just like, you know, wipe out these towns across America. You know, I mean, I feel like Amazon's kind of this new, you know, and again, because of our labor market in Chicago, they can't come in and muscle us out because we have such a strong labor force. You know, would you agree yeah, with yeah. that? Yeah, well, clearly, I mean, Amazon is a Goliath. Right? Exactly. And it's, and it's changing so much about how retail uh, certainly is done, and sadly, they invest quite heavily in remaining union-free. I mean, they run anti, strong anti-union campaigns, um, and it's, it's something that really shouldn't be tolerated given the incredible profitability uh, of, this, of this firm. Um, it should be held to a, a higher standard. It, it can make profit, right? I mean, capital can do well. It can be profitable. But at the same time, workers can earn uh, a, a living wage. And, you know, going back to the great work that Susan does in collaboration with the labor movement around how do you break down those fears or anxieties for so many non-union workers, for example, or just getting unionized workers to be fully mobilized and engaged. Uh, I think you have to challenge people to think about what it means to be a worker, 
right, to think about the fact that they have to exchange their labor, whatever that might be, highly skilled, less skilled, using technology, not using technology. Basically, you're using your body, you're using your mind, your heart, your soul, and you're laboring, right, and you're exchanging that labor power for some currency, some compensation. And at heart, in this economy, that's what you are, you know, to the employer, right? It's just baked into the system. But to think about yourself as a worker primarily, as opposed to a person of color or a not color or a particular ethnicity or a particular gender or sexual identity, all those kinds of identities are real and they're important, but they can prevent you from acting in a way that's consistent with your best economic interest. And the challenge is thinking about work. What is work? How is work important? What do you all share in common? Well, you share in common that you labor for a living. So you need to think of yourself as a worker and respond. Yeah, so I'm in an artistic industry. I'm in entertainment. And I always view work as, as a license, right? This is, I'm licensed to give you this of my time, of my efforts, of my skill set. And when you understand that what you're licensing has value, just like you look at these top artists who are like, well, you're not airing this or you're not putting this for any less than this amount, which I deem my work is worth. Mm -hmm. I think that's what every worker needs to do. So they need to get together and realize what we're doing. Our time away from our family is worth this much. And you can't screw us out of this because at the end of the day, this is what I offer you. This is what I bring to the table. So I always view, sometimes people say, you must be a socialist. You're a labor movement. No. I view in a certain dignity of work and that work has value. And you just need to realize what that value is. And yeah. like you said, um, equality in other terms, fundamentally important in what we're doing, but it starts with realizing the value of what you are worth and the work that you're doing as well, yeah, in my opinion. You know, I, I think that was very uh, well said. Uh, one of the things I challenge my uh, students, whether they're undergraduates or their adults in the workforce is to ask them, well, what is your work worth? How is it set? Who determines it, right? It isn't sort of, you know, it's not given from above. Um, there's no real sort of mechanical algorithm that produces it. But what are you worth? Well, what we do know that is if you go out into the market as a single person and you simply defer that to the employer, the employer is going to set what you're worth. And there's a built-in incentive to price that at a lower rate because it's good for profits. It's good for ownership. Uh, however, collectively, collectively, you, workers have the ability, quite frankly, to set the value of their labor higher. So, especially you know, when they do it together. Well, that's right. You have, and, the, and, and you need to not just do it within a small craft, but, and this is where, again, Susan's organization is so important because it focuses on that entire class. It focuses on the entire community. It lifts it all up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that would be the best way to really determine what is that, what is the value of the work that you do. And given how important work is to living a meaningful life, it would seem to me that that's really where your identity and your focus most needs to be. Well, just to kind of go on how important the unions are. I mean, again, my job as a you know an organizer with the bricklayers, I go out to any and all job sites in nine counties to talk to the workers, right? And I tell them every day that you guys should be, you know, and the smart ones understand it where they're like, we love the union. I mean, if we're making 47, they're making 30. And I tell them, I go, so now if unions are making 30, what do you think you're going to make? And then they kind of gets in their head like, oh, you know, 
Yeah, I'm like, you're probably going to make about 10 or 12 bucks. So I'm like, not only are the unions important, but we're literally lifting up your guy's life for the better. You know? Yeah, we're lifting them. So and like you say, I'm going to go step one step farther. Not just, yeah, what's your work worth, but like what, what are you as a man or a woman worth? When you leave the house yeah, in America, yeah, yeah, yeah. what are you worth? Like are you worth – you know, a decent wage, health insurance, yeah. eight hours, yeah. a, pension. a pension, a pension, going home, enjoying your families Avoiding. on the weekends. Right. And if you do have to work, getting double or, you know, overtime to make the money that you're losing in your life. And Sean, your workers and Raza, yours and for Susan, you cross all kinds of mm -hmm. uh, occupational sectors. Uh, th they are generating wealth. Oh, I mean, huge right? amounts yeah. of wealth. Yeah. This country is incredibly uh, 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 well off and, and, mm -hmm. and rich and productivity certainly over the past couple of decades has gone up to you know 300 percent but the portion of that wealth that's gone back to workers right has really uh, has really shrunk so those lines don't converge anymore mm -hmm. but you're still generating all that wealth so it's really what do you have to do to make sure that you get what is a, a, a fair share but, here. But Amazon, I think, really does factor into this in the bigger picture that we're talking about. Um, and what is the value of, of work and how are we um, getting our share of the wealth that we're creating, you know, as, as working people. And part of it is, you know, the thing that is looming on the horizon is this increased automation, right? And if we have a decreased need for people to be toiling every day, then what how are they going to survive? How do we accommodate this? And on the flip side of, or on the, the other part of that equation is, if so much wealth is being generated with only a fraction of the traditional workforce needed, then what happens to all of that wealth, mm -hmm. right? And so we have to, we sort of, um, we need to rethink wealth distribution, right? And we've uh, not done enough to really drive home why that matters and why that's important. And it's only going to be increasingly important issue for people to face head on, right? So I imagine in the future, we're going to need, we're going to, and I mean, when I mean future, I mean like next president, assuming we have one that you could actually accomplish something with, right? Um, we should be talking about a 30 hour work week, right? Or a four day work week. We should be talking about a six hour day, right? We should be talking about things like that, that really shift. It increases overall employment by creating opportunities for more people to work, more people to work full time. But then it also contributes to wealth redistribution. And that's, I mean, it takes more than $15 an hour to really meaningfully start redistributing wealth and, and, and really talking, you know, getting at like how insanely profitable corporate America is and that they're not paying taxes. So like not only do we have to like get them to pay taxes, but we also have to look at like the burdens that are placed on working people right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I think yeah. staffing regulation would have to have to play into that too. Like you'll go into grocery stores, and, and the ultimate disservice I think is when they have these people who are cashiers teaching people how to use these automated cashiers or the movie theaters. It's, and it seems I mean, like bank tellers, banking is kind of going all. Yeah. Like, the bankers are like, oh, just go online. I'm like, go online. I'm like, pretty soon there's going to be no need for right. Bankers, and and, and, and the fact that they're being told to tell you that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, there was a time where um, workers would have to train the next generation. There was always that fear, well, are we training them to take our jobs? Here you're basically seeing w w what's happening, and, and people are being let go, and, and it seems like there's nothing to stop this. Just snowball from continuing to go downhill and get bigger. 
I mean, what do we do about that? Look at Uber drivers. I mean, Uber drivers, everyone's an Uber driver now. I could talk for an hour about Uber and Lyft drivers. I'm like, but you just put out a million regulated taxi drivers. Yeah. So really, they're just they're yeah. just non-union drivers. Well, and, and you know, those might go self-driving yeah. too. But you, yeah. you've probably heard about this. Um, there is now a push to get some of these drivers now to to unionize. Oh, absolutely. And we our worker. So we have a workers' rights board that tries to you know do public hearings um, about these issues and hear testimony from workers directly and get experts involved. Um, and so we did a hearing just this past December with Uber and Lyft drivers. And there's a few different organizations in Chicago. Um, there's the Chicago Rideshare Advocates. So I'll just give a shout out to them. They're on Facebook. If you're watching live on Facebook, you can find that. But don't go to their page right now because you want to watch this. Um, but they exist on Facebook. And um, there's also Gig Workers Matter, um, which is broader than just the drivers. Um, there's like the um, black car drivers um, have like a group um, of more of the higher end kind of executive service. And then um, uh, the hearing that we did, we talked about how, um, how what, like what are the work wages and working conditions for these um, Uber and Lyft drivers, but then also what are the broader impacts on the rest of us? What does it mean for traffic congestion? What does it mean for the use and availability and resources available for public transit? Mm -hmm. What does it mean for public health? You know, what does it mean for climate? And there are just, you know, cascading consequences on all these fronts when you just change the rules and just, you know, throw open a market the size of Chicago and say it's the Wild West mm -hmm. for um, the, a commercial driving app like this. And so there's a lot of regulation that needs to happen. And then there is a lot of um, uh, Uber and Lyft driver organizing that needs to happen, but is starting to happen. You know, two thoughts come to mind as I uh, listen to you talk about uh, this. You know, one, this um, gig economy or yes. the, the, the growth of platform workers, it's intriguing because uh, they sit outside of current labor and employment law, right? They're designated not as employees. So we've got growing numbers of people doing labor, but we haven't actually grown the, the employee labor force that is covered under various labor and employment laws that would protect them. So we're, we, we are eliminating, we're eliminating employees while expanding workers, but those workers bear the burden. They That's bear right. the full burden of their employment because we call them contractors, right? We misclassify them. And that is a, that is a, a huge thing in Chicago. Oh, that's a huge problem. Huge. And, and obviously Uber drivers are the most, perhaps the most high profile, but yeah. they exist across all kinds of industries. That's so, our biggest fight. Yeah. It's a non-union workforce is the misclassification. And there's probably a, a hundred new apps a day that are um, basically um, using this model and in different parts of the economy. And so there's a couple of things I, I, I want to say about that. One, it's, it's really important what Bob is saying about labor law not keeping up. And one thing I brought with you with me today for you guys just to keep is um, a study that um, Harvard University put out and it's about the not quite the University of Illinois but uh, we'll accept and, no, and please forgive me please forgive me Bob I got this from our
quite well. How, how, how the teachers brought in broader community yes. issues into yeah. the Maybe you could uh, tell yeah. us a little no, about that. Uh, no, for, thank you. Uh, that was a book both uh, Brother Stephen and I were, invested a lot of time in and we we're, were really proud of because what we saw with the teacher uh, strike in 2012, mm. and it's certainly continued to evolve, is that they attempted to redefine what the purpose of a labor union was. Yes, it was to win good contractual benefits for their members. Clearly that was true. But but they were also uh, a force for progressive change in the community. So issues of racism and poverty and inequity was important to this union. And it felt that it wasn't just serving its own members, but it was serving parents. It was serving children in the broader community. They were tied to a larger purpose, which actually goes back to the way that uh, the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations in the 1930s, perceived of what the labor movement would be, that it would actually uplift society. But to do that, you have to build community relationships. You've got to build community partners. You've got to build community coalitions. And you have to treat them as partners. Uh, and, and therefore, that union, I think, becomes a leading example of how you work on behalf of your members but also on behalf of the broader community. You by, see, yeah, you see the nurses doing that a lot. And, and, so, right, and, and by the way, teachers not in Chicago, not just in Chicago, but over the last... Across the country, across really, across at the this country, point. They yeah. this, they've been yeah. the largest resistant force, yeah. uh, it, it, really, to this, you know, to this overweening power of a select small number of very well-endowed individuals to sort of control uh, public education. And that kind of practice is what we need far more of yeah. within the way that's what you do. Yeah, and, and I think the one thing that is that gets lost a little bit about the teacher and everything, I amen to everything that you said, but one thing that gets lost a little bit is that the teacher strike at a fundamental level was illegal, especially this last night, right? And so I the reason I point that out is, you know, one of the ways, so there we can legislate changes and we must, but one of the ways that I think we have to change labor laws by breaking it. Right. And and I think that's also the kind of thing that inspires, you know, people in the community or workers who are unorganized to say, you know what, this, you know, this is about deep, meaningful change that I want to be a part of. Right. And so, um, you know, the Illinois legislature had prohibited the Chicago Teachers Union from going on strike over the issues that they were talking about every day in this most re recent strike back in October. And um, and because of that fight, actually, it started a conversation about reversing that law. Right. Because they just kind of threw down the gauntlet and said, you know what, this is what our members care about, because this is what they're seeing in the classroom every day. And this is what, you know, we're demanding. So it, you can tell me it's illegal, but this is what we're doing. And you yeah, know, that, that, that so now from a historical perspective, we can see that when organized labor uh, actually grew with substantial yes. gains. And of course, that led to improving economic conditions for all uh, workers with clear with with some real clear differences for some workers and particularly some workers of of color but when you saw that middle class being built it corresponded with labor having leverage to withhold their labor so that they had not only the legal right to strike but they had the capacity to do so so that corresponds very well with labor strength and as that leverage has been lost That's since right. the early 1980s and that kind of the, ability, the Reagan years. Oh, that's that right. Destroyed and, and, and that ability to really wage successful strikes. And what are we talking about? We're talking about holding your labor. 
not being a form of, 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 of a wage slave yeah. where you have no option but to work at the will of a handful of, of, of managers yeah. or owners. So as labor lost that leverage, it corresponds with with smaller and smaller shares of That's wealth, right. getting back to what Susan said, that were going back to the working class, right? That were going back to people that were in that broad, you know, middle of the economic uh, spectrum. And not only that, but union density was falling yeah. during that. So these things all coalesce together. So if, if you can wage successful strikes, if, if you can do so, uh, whether or not they're legal or they're technically illegal, you, you are demonstrating that you have the power to work on behalf of working people. And that will certainly, it always has attracted people to the labor movement. Yeah. But of course, it also scares people yes. in power yeah. because mm -hmm. you have workers who are taking control of their own destinies, which you should be able to do in a democracy. Yeah. But in this country, then becomes terribly threatening. Well, then those people in power work triple, quadruple the amount of time and energy and money into these anti-union, don't yeah. join workers. I mean, I have people making $20 an hour being like, I don't want to pay union dues. I'm like, you're going to pay union dues and you're going to quadruple your wage and salary. Well, because they have you a know? brilliant marketing. They have right? a great so marketing. But, but I'll tell you this, one of the, um, mm -hmm. one of the speeches, or not the speeches, but the talks you made was uh, that really got to me was after the Janus decision, you were, I, I forget where you were, but it was a middle-class revival. And you were talking about how labor has faced challenges again and how we can overcome giving Janice. Um, and I remember my daughter, she's like, okay, so you can't compel people to give dues, but you can still, uh, what's the word, Sarah? You can still persuade them. And I'm like, I think that makes us stronger. Susan, what do you think? It absolutely makes it makes a union stronger to, to understand that they have to have an active relationship right, with their membership in order to make sure that they're continuing to voluntarily be a member of their union and also understand what it is their union is fighting for and what that organization is about. I think that in the long run, that does is going to make the unions in the public sector um, stronger. Um, but make no mistake, I mean, that, that lawsuit and this kind of legislation is designed to destroy unions, but you know, it's, it's sort of like the, the Flint sit-down strike, right? Like, you don't have a right to organize. It's against the law until you do it. And then people are like, well, what are you going to do? I mean, we have to, you know, we have to, we have to figure this out, right? Yeah, a lot of these things were against the law. Exactly. And, and in fact, again, yeah. and, and this is well-documented uh, uh, by uh, historians, uh, you know, these laws themselves, they weren't just a product of good objective analysis where neutrals got together and said, well, what would be more rational? What would be less rational? This was a product of power. These were socially constructed to serve the interest of some over the interests of others. So whatever, whatever labor did historically through the latter part of the 19th century into the 20th, whatever was working to build power became illegal, yep. right? Yep, uh, exactly. The, the law was used for political and economic and, and class ends. Now, this isn't an argument to go out and burn buildings or commit violence. That's certainly not no. you know, what history sh shows. It's to understand. Well, it is kind of what history shows. Well, <laughs> but, but history also shows you're going to get shot in the process. Yeah, so that's yeah, important exactly. to keep in mind. That kind of power. But, but what it shows is that you know, the appreciation of that law is a social construction. Yeah. And it's being created by people in power with a particular interest. 
So, you know, let's talk about them doing good politics to get different people into those offices. And let's create different laws, right? Different rules. The rules are created by men um, to control other men. And constrain labor. At this point, it it constrains labor. That's the purpose of it. it And at some point, when's enough enough? That's right. I mean, if right now, you know, Donald Trump and the administration is, okay, if you are a union member, it is against the law. Are we all supposed to say, oh, well, you know, the law of the land, I got to follow the rules. Like, you know, especially union members, laws are meant to be broken. Rules are meant to be changed because we're moving everybody forward. And you know what? I know myself, I'm never going to roll over for whatever kind of crazy laws are built in and put in by billionaires to keep us down. So that's kind of an important thing you're talking about. Too. He never rolls over. I try to rein him in sometimes. Good <laughs> luck with that. Well, I'm an organizer, so I have to be, you know, I'm not getting chased by police. I'm not doing my job. So we've heard about some of the... <laughs> that's who that was at the door earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let me ask you this. So we know the challenge is ahead. We know that we're at an all-time kind of low. Um, <coughs> But we have another generation coming up. I know here's the thing. There's a lot of apathy until people realize you're on their side and you can empower them, motivate them. I know in my particular union, I, I, I've kind of been able to mobilize the younger guys to come out and be like, we need a change. We see what you're trying to do. Our industry's changing. Let's fight this together. What do you guys do on a broader scheme to get the younger members involved? Tell me about your work and your feeling on how to get that next generation be like, hey, this is a fight that we cannot be apathetic about. I'm interested Let's to see work. what you guys think. What, what does this new generation look like? You know, I mean, what, what do they look like for maybe the members coming up 20 years ago? Because that's kind of what we deal with, too. So well, if, if yeah, yeah, no, if it's if polling is to be believed, mm-hmm. um, they're not they're not opposed to social. No. Right. And um, the younger you are, the more likely you are to support Bernie Sanders, for example. Right. I mean, that's what we're seeing um, in, in sort of the on the political lens. Right. So I think if if a young, you know, it's a year 18, 20 years old, something like that. Right. Like what you have seen over the last decade is this spectacular implosion of our economy. Right. And then uh, we bail out corporate America. Corporate America is doing great. And the rest of us are like, yeah, well, we used to own a house. Don't anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's radicalizing, I think. And so I think what, what I feel like I see with young people is that they want to see militancy. They want to see a militant struggle against, you know, a climate apocalypse. They want to see a militant struggle against corporate greed. They want to see a militant struggle in, in favor of people being able to have self-determination in their communities and in, and in their lives. And so I think that's the challenge to... And organizations like mine, the nonprofit industrial complex, as well as, you know, the labor movement is like, are we really, are we really showing up in that way? Well, here's my question. up to actually do the work, though? This might be what they want to yeah. see. Do you see younger people showing up uh, to rallies that you're doing to sure. actually put in the work? To well, more of their own rallies, right? Like the Sunrise Climate Movement or the Youth Climate Strike, right? Like mm-hmm. young people really are organizing on their own terms and in their own way. And that's always the most important thing. And then the only other thing I would say with my, you know, borrowing Bob's history hat is um, saying that our social movements are always most powerful when young people are at the fore. You know, if they're at the forefront demanding change, that's what has a tendency to, to shift the, 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 you know, the debate and the perception of what the demand is. What why is that? Why, I don't why? know. I think we're soft on our kids. You know, yeah. we get, so you know, we see these, yeah. we see these sweet, beautiful faces, 
And we and we go. <laughs> you meet the three I got over there. <laughs> okay, so it's weird. Okay, that's spoken like a soft-hearted auntie. What can I say? But I also think that it's just, or like when you know the students at Kent State get shot, mm. right? And then people, it's a sobering moment. You're like, wow, things are must be really serious if if young people are leading youth climate strike. You know, we're not taking this ser as seriously so as we need to. How do we get these young people into our movement? So one thing, I, I love seeing it. You're right. They're organizing more than they ever are. Social media is bringing everything to everyone's, you know, attention. But how do we get, I feel like some of these younger progressive groups aren't, they're not for unions. But they're fighting for what we want. They want equal pay between men and women. They want better money. They want all these, like, you know, progressive, like, changes. But then when I say unions are like, well, you know, whatever about that. Yeah. So, you know, how do we get these younger people to come into the union movement and kind of let the union movement lead these social changes? So interesting uh, uh, dilemma mm -hmm. uh, that, that you're experiencing. So, uh, you know, a couple of things. A public, at the same time that union density is at this frighteningly low, uh, less than 11%, uh, public opinion polls, have it at the highest it's been in 50 years. 73%? Well, I don't know if it's quite that high, but it is at, uh, at a 50-year high, yeah. right? And we've seen this upsurge in militancy led principally uh, uh, by teachers, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's also the case that when you dig into those polling numbers, younger workers, those 18 to 29 or, you know, maybe even into 35 years, uh, have a higher level of approval for the labor movement than do older uh, age classifications, which suggests that there is a welcoming force of, of young workers who, as uh, Susan has talked about, really have, uh, have come out of college in a bad, well, they came out in a bad economy, or they've experienced this, you know, we're just growing out of this long uh, recession, um, and so they've experienced and now recognize some real economic pain and a loss of, uh, of opportunity. Uh, and in fact, they really do embrace equality. They embrace equity. Unlike previous labor uh, generations, generation of workers, they are far more inclusive. They're not concerned with who marries who. They're not concerned with relationships. They're not going to allow the same kind of, uh, of issues, cultural issues, wedge issues, that separated previous generation of workers from separating them. How, so that, uh, that enables us to get to an identity that's really built on equity and justice. And, and what could organized labor do? Well, a couple of things. One, maybe, maybe organized labor doesn't have to lead them. Maybe they can be co-equals. They can be partners. There can be progressive forces that choose a path that is not deferential to labor, but is actually supportive of it's labor. Side by side. Well, that's right. Yeah. Where labor is a progressive. Partnership. You form a genuine partnership with those progressive forces. That was a path labor could have taken out of the, out of the 1960s and the civil rights and the anti-war movement. Some parts of labor wanted to go that way. Other parts of labor wanted retracted in and said, no, we don't want to be connected with those sort of fringe elements. And they right. turned off a generation of young young people. Wasn't what? it United Workers who went down that route? United yeah. Electrical Workers, you mean? United Electrical yeah. Workers. Well, and I was going to say, this does relate directly to Red Scare yeah. stuff, yeah. you know, coming yeah. out of the 50s, for it, sure. It, it all does. 
but it, just to finish this point, the AFL-CIO under Liz Schuler, mm. right, Secretary of Trade, she headed up this, you know, under 40s, I think it was, an under 40s, mm. you know, movement of, of, of young workers. They did an awful lot of polling, did a lot of focus groups. They reached out to a lot of young workers, got them involved in the organizing institute that came to Washington, mm. and they worked as organizers, got involved in political care. But what did they learn? Those young workers said that they're supportive of organized labor. They're strongly supportive, but it can't be their grandparents. It can't be their grandfather's labor movement. It's going to have to look like it's going to have to have Muslims in leadership. It's going to have to have more women. You're going to have to find people under 30 in positions of leadership. You're going to have to have a new way that you create, right? It's going to have to look like the modern workforce, and it's going to have to respect the role of young people. Now, if the labor movement is responsive and it adapts, right, then this generation is there to work on behalf of the same causes, mm. the same issues, but as partners. The one thing I don't to want keep a young guy come after my job. Okay, <laughs> here's one thing to keep. Well, you are a young guy. What are you talking yeah, about? Who are you? So, are you talking like So the one thing though is that when you think about that group of 18 to 24 year old workers, for example, a lot of times they're in these industries that have been structured precisely to avoid the possibility of being unionized. Right. So do they even have a path into the labor movement itself? Right. I mean, if they are working in retail, if they're working in food service, if they're working as independent contractors for God only knows who, um, then do they even have a pathway into the labor movement? And I think that's the real issue. And so we have to be thinking about how we create labor organizations that may look and operate a little differently than what we we have today, but that allows for the for these workers to organize and, and be the new frontier of the labor movement. We have to think outside the box. For sure. Exactly. We have to start. I think the very important thing that you guys mentioned is about listening. It's about listening to what else the other opposing ideas. And I got to say, just to tune our own horn a little bit, I think that's what Sean and I have been able to do well, is we don't go in there as labor activists saying this is how things are done. And, and this is part of uh, the forum of us creating this kind of interactive website where people can talk to us and tell us, hey, this is what we think. Can we question this? And then we have a dialogue and a discussion. Um, and and it, it's obviously grown. When we started this, we had no idea what it would uh, do. And thanks to those who are watching and listening, we've, uh, I think, 1,500 followers. No, in over 1,600 now. 1,600. And we're trying to bridge this gap of the public and the private sectors. And, yeah. and I've grown a lot more, too, because I'm a building trades guy. So and what else is going to be growing coming soon and bringing us into our uh, next big announcement? Yeah. If you're tuning in to us uh, here on Life, Love, and the Grind, one o'clock Saturdays. Uh, we're going to ask you to make a change and come with us as we continue to grow. This will be not our last Saturday. We're going to have one more where we kind of talk about everything we did. But after this, we're moving to a bigger and uh, better forum. Yeah. Sorry if you could pop up uh, where we are heading. Um, uh, Sean and I have been uh, gracefully and gratefully picked up by WCPT to, mm -hmm. to spread the message that we do with labor uh, leaders. And activists and politicians and our listeners who express interest in coming on to a bigger message. I believe we cover six counties. Sorry, you've got those up. I think it's over nine counties. It's over, over nine, nine counties. I'm pretty sure. What is it? What is that show? Sorry. Online counties. Online counties. WCPT. Eight twenty a.m. We got a new every time Sunday, too. three to four p.m. A new, uh, thank you. Thank a new established show. And, yeah, thank you for everyone who came before and kind of helped build our name up and kind of and the ones that are still here. It's been a 
really exciting road. But yeah, we're, we're grateful for WCPT for reaching out to us and letting us know that they want us a part of their show. And the guests are just going to keep getting bigger and better leading up to YouTube, obviously. Although there's going to be my favorite shoes so far. after YouTube. Yeah, these are big <laughs> shoes. And on my birthday of all days, too, has yeah. been exciting with the labor movement. Like so. I said, my gift to you to yeah. make sure we got a, so, uh, a huge lineup. Right? I feel yeah. bad we didn't even bring a cupcake or anything for <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. I didn't want to go under the radar. Well, yeah, no, I wouldn't let that happen. <laughs> but, yeah. but okay, so so what I want to talk about to uh, our listeners here and our bigger listeners coming up is what do we face going forward? Um, how, how do we address some of these challenges? The PRO Act, right? Uh, we had uh, battles against right-to-work zones. There's a lot going on. There's good and bad news. Susan, what's up? What do we do? Tell me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a that's a big uh, question. Uh, I. As always, I, I remain um, optimistic somehow, um, and I think some of what we d talked about today is what gives me optimism. The fact is that people still want to organize, and people still are organizing. Um, the, the deck is stacked against working people, and labor laws organized against working people, but they still want to organize, and they're still fighting to organize in every means and venue available. Um, and young people are organizing, and they're, you know, so as long as that's the case, there's always hope. And so we've got our work cut out for us trying to protect what we have, but also create space to create the labor movement of the future that we need. Um, but there are amazing young leaders in the labor movement like yourselves who are going to, I fully believe, are up to the task of helping chart that future. Well, we love a challenge, too. Yeah. If it was easy, it wouldn't be fun, right? That's right. Yeah, bring exactly. it back. Yeah. yeah. Well, I do think the kind of work that both you are, are doing and, and using technology and using social media and thinking out of the box and being creative and being open and inclusive uh, in, in, in having honest and courageous conversations, um, I think that will attract a, a generation uh, of workers. And you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, of, a, of a quote, I may not get it exactly right, by Nelson Mandela, which was that you know, everything always seems impossible until it's not. Mm -hmm. And the labor movement uh, was once seen as impossible. Right. And it's been, you know, it, it's, it's uh, death knell has been uh, claimed repeatedly over time. Well, in the 1920s, maybe, how low was it, 2%? Maybe? Well, at almost non-existent. Yeah. Exactly. And of course, then there is this upsurge. And then once again, it takes a hit, yeah. and then there's an upsurge. And why is it? And that's because human beings really do pursue justice they pursue fairness they pursue equality and when and when the imbalance of power gets so great it generates a positive and a powerful uh, reaction so there's going to be um, you know many uh, pathways to rebuilding that labor movement uh, I do think that we're you know we're in a political season so there's an opportunity to talk about a labor agenda. There's an opportunity yes. to talk about political candidates. There's an opportunity to talk about well, what kind of policy, what kind of structural changes would actually uh, uh, help to make things better. There is this uh, law, a bill passed in the House that your listeners should go and look at, right, to, to get a better understanding of what could possibly be, like this could be a future well, tell us a little about well it, it's referred to as the, the PRO Act, and its acronym has to do with protecting workers and organizing on the job. And it addresses some of the current flaws and imbalances of power uh, that make it hard for workers to organize or, or allow employers with, without any sort of 
punish with punishment with impunity uh, to violate uh, worker rights, which mm -hmm. sort of undoes some of the current legislation uh, that it, it addresses things like misclassification. So it's a well, rebalancing. That fine right now on misclassification is like $1,000. Which is, which is literally the cost yeah. of doing business, yeah. right? They carry freaking ten grand cash on them. They're just paying everybody off. It's like that's that's insane. That's not a meaningful consequence. No. So the fact that you've got uh, one House of Congress passing that bill, you're in a political season. If you you know if you change the White House, if you change uh, the Senate, you're likely to get legislation like that passed. And all of a sudden, what seemed impossible, yeah. right, uh, is now uh, is now possible. You've got teachers in red and blue states, yeah. who, whether the law lets them or not. Yeah. Are, red states are going out on strike time. on behalf of their students. So there's a lot of positive activism, uh, quite frankly, that's in the that, that's out there now, and uh, and we need to keep bringing to people's attention that yes, this is how change happens. It's the only way yeah. change is happening. Well, and one thing we stress with our you know bricklayers, we give to our apprentices is you know it's the human condition that never really changes. We always explain to them like pyramids were built off slaves. The Roman yes. Empire was created off slavery. America was built on slavery. I mean, this cheap labor has been such a, you know, huge part of the, like human history. And I'm like, what's changed? It's kings and peasants. And Donald Trump is a king right now, and he wants us all to live as peasants. And the labor movement, the union workforce of men and women are the last driving force to create this change, to fight for change, and to empower and change and building these partnerships that we talk about with the LGBT community, which has made huge strides in such a shorter period too. Like True. we have to band right. together. Right. And and I and like I was saying before, like even with me, like I you know, I'm a building trades guy. So I'm like, you know, you have an apprenticeship, you shut your mouth, you work your way up, but we have to empower young workers. We have to make them feel like they have a place to go and they're not only welcomed, but they're encouraged and empowered to be leaders and to be somebody in this labor movement. I think that hopefully maybe will attract more of our members to come. And you know, in our union, we don't have an apprenticeship mm -hmm. program. Um, these workers are hired and, and it's our job to teach them the benefits of this. But again, um, this is, I believe, the best way to do it, just have these open dialogues. And that's why Sean and I have yeah. created this. But if any of my workers or the apprentices want to learn more about and continue the dialogue with you, um, tell us a little about how they can get involved with your organization. Tell us a little about your program. Susan, let's uh, start with you. Um, it's pretty straightforward. I'll just refer people to our website, which is chicagojwj.org. Um, we're also on Twitter and Facebook and post a lot. Um, you can find us on the usual channels. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I think uh, folks should reach out uh, directly. I'd be happy to respond to, to emails of workers who have an interest in, in, in training or in material they can read. They can email me at my university address, which is pretty simple, bbruno uh, at illinois.edu. And if they go on the website and they go to the School of Labor and Employment Relations at the University of Illinois and just click on labor education, they'll pull up. Uh, a lot of the work uh, that uh, we do, and, um, and we're we're twenty four seven, yeah. twelve months out of the year. We're uh, we know how hard you guys are working. So. Yeah, and my contact information is on the website as well, yeah. so it's all there. So you know, um, the real message about what we do here is about family. Uh, I view you guys all as family coming together and doing a cause. And now my family has a little uh, message for you. Uh oh, oh here comes the. Happy birthday to you. 
Happy birthday, dear Sean. Happy birthday to you. And just a shout out to Sara, who's MC, yes. the brains behind all of our operations always. You know, Sara's amazing. And keeping us to keeping everyone grounded, yeah. which is no, legitimate. This is from job. our local bakery here called Pound Cake. Oh, sorry, and, here, please. Yes, this is from our Pound Cake Bakery right on Main Street. Um, it's a woman-owned business, and um, she's opened up about um, a year ago, and she's been doing phenomenally. This cake, this pie is called Death by Chocolate, and I can love, love, I can eat this almost every day. So this is, definitely go there if you guys get a chance, but... Join us in eating this. It's already Sean's birthday. So, happy birthday, Sean. Oh, this is a great show. Yeah. So, yeah. wonderful. How special is this? You've never seen the three of us together. Next show, it's actually going to be Sean, yeah. myself, and Sarah talking about what we've um, built and what we hope to build going forward. Um, as any married guy might tell you, it's never easy to share a platform with your wife. We'll see how that turns out yeah, next week. Until then, um, we've got some cake to enjoy. Thank you for helping yeah. us uh, grow this. And uh, keeping the questions coming, we'll join you Saturday and then again Sunday at our new time and for, uh, place. Tell us yeah, where WCPT, it WCPT, 8.20 a.m., February 16th, 3 to 4 p.m., and then moving forward is going to be Sunday. So thank you to Professor Bob Bruno, Susan Hurley. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Sean. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks everybody. Sarah, Sarah, of course. Thank you. And thank you to all of you. Goodbye. <laughs>